0: Let us pray. Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the Holy Spirit proceeds, we give You thanks and praise today. We praise You for creating and sustaining us, for providing for us and prospering us. We praise You in the heights of our joy and in the depths of our despair. We praise You in our pleasures and in our pains. We praise You for our forgiveness. For freely accepting us in Christ Jesus, Your Son, who was crucified and resurrected for us. We praise You for granting us new life, a new birth from above by the work of Your Holy Spirit. We praise You for Your Word, the inspired Scriptures. We praise You for baptism, the washing of renewal. We praise You for the Lord's Supper, our communion meal, in which we feast upon Jesus Christ Himself by faith and in which the bonds of love between us are strengthened. We praise You for the beauty and wonder of the world You have made, for the star-filled heavens and the creature-filled sea, for rocks and trees and animals of all kinds. We praise You for making heaven, for making earth, and for promising to make them one in the end. We praise You for making us male and female, each with their own glory, for calling us into the covenant of marriage to symbolize Christ's union with the church. We praise You for newborn babies. We We praise you for maturing children into adults. We praise you for music and technology and paintings and clothes and every good thing you put in our lives. We thank you for trials that strengthen us as we struggle and make us more like your son. We thank you for one another in the church body and for the church universal, the great multitude of saints, the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. We thank you that you have called us to come near to you today, that you have invited us into your heavenly sanctuary. We thank you that you embrace us in love, that you speak truth to fill our minds and to encourage our hearts, that you give us food to nourish our souls from the heavenly altar, and you grant us your blessing as you equip us for living as citizens of your kingdom and as servants of our neighbors. We praise you, we thank you, we honor you, we glorify you, O Father of all glory, the eternally begotten Son and the life-giving Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.
1: Our lesson of the day is Psalm 14. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. This is a psalm for the director by David. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They ruin. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sons of Adam to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the doers of iniquity, those who devour My people like they devour bread? They do not call on yahweh there they are greatly afraid for god is with the generation of the righteous you all would frustrate the plans of the afflicted but yahweh is their refuge oh that salvation for israel would come from zion when Je- when yahweh restores the fortunes of his people let jacob rejoice and israel be glad this is the word of the lord
0: Thanks.
1: Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You for Your great mercy upon us that You do not treat us as our sins deserve, but that You have rescued us and redeemed us and made us Your very own people. We thank You for Your Word and the promise that were two or three are gathered together in Your name. There You are in the midst of them. Bless now the reading and the preaching of Your Word that it would be Grow and flourish and bear much fruit in our lives. Consecrate us as living sacrifices by the sword of Your Spirit. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Several weeks ago, looking at Psalm 13, I suggested... That the lamentation, how long, could very well be the motto of the divine school of kingship. Emblazoned across the archways, so to speak. How long? Psalm 13, like so many other psalms of lament, teaches us how to suffer in faith. How to wait in hope and how to wrestle with God in prayer. Like Joseph, like Job, like David, like Jesus Himself, God has destined us for glory. But the path to glory leads us straight through the trials of adversity. Straight through death itself. And so if we are to share in Christ's glory, we must also share in Christ's suffering. And lament Psalms like Psalm 13 sustain us and transform us on that journey from death to life, from glory to greater glory. But there's more to kingship than simply learning how to persevere in the face of affliction. There's more to glory and dominion than simply learning how to wait. Kings must also acquire the discernment to evaluate difficult cases to pronounce hard judgment. Kings and anyone else in a position of authority must have the wisdom to see through the superficial matters, to see through the way things appear to understand what's really going on. In order to exercise authority effectively, we must learn how and when to call a spade a spade in our age of tolerance and in our southern culture of politeness name calling is highly discouraged is it not at least to someone's face okay you can you can uh, run them down behind their back as long as you bless their heart afterward Right? But calling someone a, a rude or insulting name to their face is still a no-no, right? Still socially, uh, a faux pas. Although this, uh, what we find in Psalm 14 is not exactly that kind of name calling. Psalms like this one teach us, they, they shake us out of our niceness, so to speak. They teach us the importance of name-calling, of properly diagnosing sin. After all, the refusal to properly identify sin is about as loving and helpful as a doctor who won't acknowledge his patient's disease for fear of hurting his feelings. Psalm 14 is considered a wisdom psalm. It's a little bit different than uh, many of the other psalms that we've come across So far, it's not so much a prayer as it is an instruction. It includes a a request. It includes a, a prayer at the end. But it is a wisdom psalm because it teaches us, it describes the utter insanity of rejecting God's authority. It's a rebuke against fools. And it trains us. It trains God's people to call a fool a fool. So if we're going to do that, let's consider what exactly is being described here. What does David have in view when he says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? For starters, it's important to remember that theoretical atheism, the the belief, the ideology or the if you could call it a, a rational position it's really an irrational position, but theoretical atheism, the belief that there is no God, it is a belief, by the way, it is a faith, uh, is a, this is a relatively recent philosophical invention. There was no such thing as that sort of atheist in the ancient world. To be an atheist in ancient times was simply to reject the gods of a particular people in favor of a different God or gods. So the early Christians who refused to burn incense uh, to the Roman gods, the early Christians who refused to bow down uh, to the idols of the ancient world were called atheists because they refused to worship the the pantheon uh, of Roman and Greek gods. Atheism as we know it today did not really exist until the 16th century And it wasn't even until the late 18th century that people began to identify themselves as subscribing to this set of beliefs, as identifying themselves as an atheist. It's difficult to prove, but I'm convinced that atheism is usually just a smokescreen intellectual objections to the existence of God are usually just a sophisticated-sounding way to do whatever it is you want to do. There may be thoughtful uh, objections. There may be uh, real questions about certain doctrines of Scripture. Rational debate, though. Argumentation about these Objections is usually not sufficient to convert an atheist. Have you ever seen a debate where between a Christian and an atheist, where at the end it's obvious that the Christian has has um, has proved um, that atheism is an absurd position, and the atheist just falls down on his knees and, and gets converted on the spot? I think that suggests to us that the intellectual, so-called intellectual objections, are really A smokescreen. In an age that prizes doubt and hates authority, atheism and agnosticism are very appealing and respectable ways to be your own boss, to be your own God, to cast off, to try to cast off the authority of God and our accountability to Him. Sin and rebellion against God cause people to do insane things. Sin makes us stupid. And atheism is not the source of this folly, but the result. It is the fundamental arrogance behind atheism that Psalm 14 is describing. Another way to translate this first verse is the fool has said in his heart, no God, or no God over me. Theoretical atheism is only the outworking of that posture. The justification, so to speak, of that position. Notice that the psalm describes foolish men in terms of a rebellious posture of heart and will toward God. The motto of sinful human nature is there is no God over me. I am God and there shall be no other." This is the height of arrogance. This is the definition of a fool. The wisdom literature of the Bible has several different words for fool. A fool in Proverbs is often one who is ignorant or naive. A blockhead, so to speak. Thinking they know it all, fools are usually gullible, cocky, and they give little thought to the consequences of their decisions. But the word for fool in Psalm 14, nabal, actually describes someone who is not merely immature or ignorant. This kind of fool is not so much intellectually deficient as morally reprehensible. A nabal is a person who brings shame on himself and others. Job rebukes his wife at the beginning of the book of Job. Job's wife tells him, Curse God and die. And Job rebukes his wife, and warns her for speaking like a Nabal. At the end of the book, we heard um, earlier, chapter 42, God rebukes Job's friends for their folly, for their foolish and impudent talk. Jesus describes a fool in Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus describes a fool as one who hears God's truth but rejects it. Like a man who builds his house on the sand, a fool ignores wisdom and finds only ruin and destruction for himself and others. Of course, the ultimate Nabal is the man named Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal is described as brutish disgraceful offensive ungrateful and downright evil david's men had gone out of their way to do good to nabal they had protected his flocks uh, they had guarded his his uh, herdsmen and when david makes a simple request for provision and hospitality nabal l- laughs at them and and curses them and uh is just utterly uh utterly rude to them. David straps on his swords and goes to deal with Nabal, Uh, but Abigail, uh, Nabal's uh, wife, he definitely uh, married out of his league, uh, comes and intervenes and stops David uh, from killing her worthless husband, who is, as she says, like his name, worthless, a Nabal, a fool, It was only, though, a few days later that the Lord struck down Nabal so that he died. Nabal's tale is a cautionary tale for fools who take advantage of the righteous and live only for their own pleasure. This is the kind of fool that Psalm 14 is talking about. Attempting to escape God's authority is an illusion that results not in freedom but in bondage. And destruction. It's like trying to liberate a house of its walls. Be free. It's like trying to liberate someone of gravity, uh, right? Not not going to end well. Verse verse one describes the actions that result from a foolish and rebellious heart, such as this. It says, "They they ruin, they corrupt." they destroy they do abominable deeds there is no one who does good this word for corruption describes ruining and spoiling and defacing things it describes egregious behavior that provokes god to judgment and it it destroys it it actually describes god's judgment on that sort of behavior it's an ironic use of the word when In Genesis six, God describes the world as totally corrupt, and then he says he's going to destroy it. It's the same world. Same word, excuse me. The word describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had become so corrupt that God brings corruption upon them in the form of destructive judgment. The angel of death, the destroyer, in Exodus twelve, is used is it's this word, the one who brings. Destruction. It describes in Exodus 32 how Israel corrupted themselves by worshiping the golden calf, thus provoking God to bring destruction upon them in the form of a plague. It describes defiled worship and corrupt teaching that provokes God to judgment. God turns us over to our sin and the results of our sin is that we get what we want. Corruption and destruction. And these fools don't keep it to themselves. They spread this corruption. They spread this destruction like wildfire. They deface and destroy everything they touch. Fools commit abominable deeds, acts so inconsistent with God's character that they are utterly repulsive. Fools like this are devoid of anything true, good, or beautiful because they have cut themselves off from the source of truth, goodness, and beauty. And as a result, when they encounter anything true, goodness, good, or beautiful, they want to stamp it out because it serves as a reminder of the God they are in rebellion against. If this description sounds a little bit over the top, it could very well be that, as Charles Spurgeon points out, we have become so accustomed to the devastating effects of sin, to our own sin, and to the sin in the world around us that we often don't even recognize it. He says it's like a, um, a shop owner who has uh, works around a certain type of, of wood all day. It's, it becomes to the point where he doesn't even recognize the smell of that wood anymore because he's become so used to it. And it may be that we have become desensitized to the devastating effects of sin because we're so used to it. This is why we need passages like Psalm 14 to recalibrate our consciences and to instruct us in righteousness. And apparently, we really need the message of Psalm 14 because it's repeated almost word for word again in Psalm 53. Go check it out. It's a little bit different. But it's almost the same exact psalm. And so, what what is God's response to this sort of folly and destruction? Verse 2 tells us, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sun's Of Adam, the sons of man, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. No matter how many people might try to deny God's authority or prove his non existence, God's sovereignty is not diminished in the least. God is still looking down from heaven as Lord and Judge of all. He is still inspecting and evaluating all men in every aspect of life on earth. Preaching the lights out here, folks. God is looking for one who understands. He's looking for the opposite of a fool. One who has knowledge. He's looking for those who are seeking God. Because seeking God, seeking wisdom, the willingness to submit to God is the prerequisite for wisdom, It's the prerequisite for a well-ordered life. It's interesting that God is described in several places as looking down from heaven on the sons of man. It's, it has um, the effect of showing the irony of man's smallness. Like in the scene of the Tower of Babel when God is described as coming down to see what they were doing. Even the greatest achievements of, of fleshly man, even the greatest exploits uh, of these t- ki- kinds of fools barely uh, register as a blip on the radar. God has to come down with a microscope, so to speak, to check it out and see what's actually going on. All the bravado, all the, the empty talk amounts to nothing. But at the same time, this idea of God coming down or looking down from heaven on the sons of man. It highlights how seriously God deals with sin and oppression. There comes a point at which sin reaches such a dire level that God has to come down himself, so to speak, and deal with it decisively. This seems to be the case here in Psalm 14, because when God inspects mankind, he finds that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David anticipates what Paul says later in Romans 1 when he describes mankind as universally depraved and thoroughly damaged by sin. In fact, Paul quotes this psalm later in Romans chapter 3 to, to, to level the playing field and say that all men, Jew, Gentile, No matter, all men stand condemned before God. As the the New England uh, Primer puts it when it was uh, teaching children the alphabet, for the letter A, it's in Adam's fall, we sin all. School textbooks. Great stuff. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who didn't inherit Adam's guilt or his depraved nature. And apart from Christ, we are all alienated from God and without hope in the world. If it were not for God's grace, mankind would truly be set on an unalterable course toward eternal damnation. This is the bleak reality that is described in Psalm 14 in the first half. The description of a world in rebellion against God. And this is uh, resonating with other passages of, of Scripture that describe the wickedness of man and God's judgment upon them. Romans 1 and in passages like Psalm 14 remind us of Adam who is the prototypical fool. He is the one who ate God's Food, his bread, so to speak, and fail to call on God, like Psalm 14 describes. Adam is the one who, professing to be wise, became a fool. But then also we see this pattern again and again throughout the first, the early parts of Scripture. In the flood account, as I mentioned, Genesis 6 describes. The world, he describes that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Tower of Babel is another scene where God looks down from heaven and sees a very bleak situation. In Genesis 11, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of Adam had built. Again, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to Me. And if not, I will know. And then in the beginning of Exodus, before God commissions Moses to, to bring about the release of the, of the people of Israel, it says, During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In these and many other examples, God brings judgment against the wicked because the cry of the righteous has finally move God to vindicate His people. The cry of the oppressed ascends to heaven and it moves God to act and come down and bring deliverance. This psalm is not about people who follow all uh, the rational evidence and reach the logical conclusion that God does not exist. Atheism is much more sinister than that. Whether it's a, a uh, espousing uh, an ideology or whether it's just a lie that we tell ourselves to numb the pain of conscience and conviction practical atheism acting as if there is no god in charge of us this is rebellion against god of the highest order that leads a path of destruction and violence sin always has victims. And the righteous, the people of God, are almost always on the receiving end of that violence. Because any reminder of God's will, any reminder of man's accountability to God must be destroyed. Sin does not tolerate the righteous. Sin seeks to stamp them out. You cannot appease... uh, the hell-bent fool with toleration. This is what David means when he says, those who devour My people as they devour bread. Eating bread, eating food, is one of the most basic acts of living. It's one of the most basic acts of staying alive. And so denying God's authority and our accountability to Him has a long-term effect of searing the conscience to such an extent that oppressing the righteous and consuming other people, living as if God is not in charge over us, this becomes as ordinary as eating bread. Like popping, you know, popcorn or something at the movie theater. Nonchalant, not even thinking about it. It's interesting that, that God's people here are described compared with bread because that's a common, uh, common comparison that we see throughout Scripture. In fact, wicked rulers throughout the Bible are often denounced by prophets by eating up God's people and using them to satisfy their own appetites. In Micah 3, there's a vivid depiction, a vivid condemnation of the leaders, uh, oppressive rulers in Israel who are described as feasting on God's people. In Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel are condemned by the prophet for eating God's sheep instead of protecting them. If you remember, Eli's wicked sons are killed because they are stealing the sacrificial food which is symbolic of the worshipers who are bringing that food. They are filling, filling their own stomachs with, with other people with the righteous, the people who are bringing their sacrifices to the temple, to the sanctuary. And Jesus condemns the religious leaders of Israel for devouring widows' houses. And He warns against false teachers who are only seeking to fill their own stomachs and make a profit. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing that Martin Luther described as belly teachers. I almost... uh, Use that as the title for my sermon, but um, the belly teachers, the, the the people who are eating up God's people uh, to fill their own stomachs, and so we see this repetition throughout Scripture of the the danger to be on guard against even among God's own people, even within the church, we have to be on guard against this temptation to use others for our own benefit. Paul has dire warnings about how the church behaves at the Lord's table. Those who create divisions in the church, those who fail to discern the body of the Lord, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So this is more than simply a denouncement of the wicked. This is more than just pointing the finger at all those wicked people out there and oh, look how bad those people are. This is also a warning for us. This is a warning for God's people. God's judgment on the foolish and arrogant is a sobering reminder that we are not immune from the temptations to act as if God is not Lord over us. In fact, the warnings of Scripture teach us that God's people, and especially leaders and the church, people in positions of authority, are held to a higher standard of accountability. And so we are in serious danger if we assume that only the most brazen pagans and idolaters are in danger of judgment. In fact, judgment will be much worse for hypocrites who proclaim God's name, yet act as if He is not their Lord and Judge. God will not be mocked. But these warnings, of course, cut both ways. These promises are also a message of comfort for the oppressed. Verses 5 and 6 describe how the doers of iniquity are greatly afraid because God is with the generation of the righteous. Where is God when His people are being oppressed? Where is God when they are being devoured like bread? When their counsel is being thwarted and they are being attacked by enemies? God is with them. The wicked seek to trap the vulnerable and devour them, but the Lord is the refuge of the oppressed. And so, David, in faith, calls out on God to bring salvation. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come from Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. God is a refuge for His people from the oppression of those in rebellion against God. Even when it seems like the righteous have vanished God always preserves a faithful remnant God in his grace has saved many of the fallen human race and has made them his own who has ca- has counted them as righteous through faith And so time and time again we see throughout scripture that God brings salvation to his people in and through his judgment There is no salvation without judgment. When the arrogant and the wicked have corrupted and destroyed God's world, God is faithful. He always brings new creation out of chaos. He always brings life out of death. The promise of God's Word, the promise, the hope of Psalm 14 is that God will restore the fortunes of his people God will restore all that the enemy devours as Isaiah 62 prophesies about the the Messiah he will lift uh, he will lift his people out of the ashes of shame and glorify us with beauty the Lord will bring an end to our mourning and anoint us with the oil of gladness the Lord takes away our fainting spirit and he clothes us with with a garment of praise. This is what it means for God to restore the fortunes of His people. This is Exodus language. This is language of liberation from bondage and oppression. This is language used to describe the return from exile. God restoring the fortunes of His people. And this is also the language used to describe God's restoration and blessing on Job after he had endured his fiery trial. You say, but Job was not in captivity. Job was never in exile. Job was not being sought. His life was not being sought by uh, murderous people. He was not hauled off in chains to a foreign country. This shows us the many different ways that God's people suffer. And it shows us that God is faithful to restore us no matter what kind of suffering we have endured. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world will and are suffering persecution and violence from men who mock God and worship idols. True atheists, you could say. Our prayer for them is that God would indeed rescue them and vindicate them from those who want nothing more than to shed their blood that God would restore their fortunes and cause the church to flourish through their faithfulness. But other Christians, many like you and me, will probably not endure that exact kind of affliction. We will, we will probably endure the types of suffering more like Job underwent. Probably not to that extent, God willing. There, but there probably is not going to be anyone trying to kill you at least not anytime soon i don't know uh, there are plenty of people though who would love nothing more than to deceive you with lies than to break your faith than to watch you crumble and fall and make a grand wreck of your own life and your witness to christ and will oppress you with words will seek to to thwart your plans and your counsel In whatever situation we find ourselves, remember the words of Psalm 14 when Yahweh restores the fortunes of His people. It's when, not if. And as Psalm 126 reminds us, the same sort of language that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. The best news of all is that salvation... The salvation for which David long has come. Salvation is the name Joshua. It's the name Jesus. And salvation has quite literally come from Zion. The death and resurrection of Christ has brought God's salvation from Zion. The outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh has brought salvation from Zion. And that salvation is flowing out to the world because Jesus has ascended to the heavenly Zion and He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the One who saves us to the uttermost. But you and I still pray, Psalm 14, we still cry out for God to bring salvation from Zion because full and final salvation is still yet to come. We still have That longing. We still live in the already, but not yet. But this is our hope and this is our faith that God is not idle between His first and final comings. God is bringing His salvation to the world slowly, often imperceptibly. He is bringing salvation to the world through the church, which is the heavenly. Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem that is descending from heaven to earth. Through the church's prayer, through our praise, through our feasting and our fasting, through our service and our witness, through our suffering on behalf of others, the church is God's channel of blessing and salvation to the world. Outside the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. But inside the church, God is with His people. Inside the church, there is salvation galore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this hope. We thank You for this instruction from Your Word. And we pray that we would take it to heart. Give us humility to submit to You in all things, to bring all aspects of our lives and of life in the world under Your Lordship. Give us faith to trust You in times of suffering and difficulty and help us to be diligent in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are in need of Your salvation. Give us hope and faith by Your Spirit. In Christ's name, Amen.